0: Uh, but as we consider uh, the Christmas story, there's a lot of things that we focus in on, and I want to draw our attention to some things that we tend to kind of miss or that fall through the cracks when we're considering uh, the Nativity and, uh, and the Christmas uh, season. And, and uh, Luke 2, look at, uh, we'll just go ahead and read, um, starting in verse number 1. Luke 2, verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary his espoused spouse wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there there were in the same country shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore, afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was uh, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, as it was told unto them. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us now as we uh, consider some, uh, some various passages and some characters around this uh, Christmas story. And, and Lord, we do thank you for sending your son into this world to, to pay the price for sin and to rescue sinners. Even as Joseph was instructed, you should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God who saves that you're a God who, who condescends to us to meet us where we are at, to bring us to you. Uh, what a tremendous Savior. What a tremendous God. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, stir our hearts this morning. I pray, Father, if there's one here that doesn't know you as Savior, that they'd get that matter settled today. I pray that you'd stir uh, believers. The importance of, uh, of, Christ- of Christmas and uh, the importance of, uh, of uh, sharing the truth of Christ with others that you came into this world not just to save those that are interested in you, but to save anyone, whosoever will may come. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for most people, Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year. as uh, Christians, we celebrate. As we celebrate, we think of God sending His Son into this world. We think about we think about all the things. You know, we hear this phrase all the time. You know, Jesus is the reason for the season. We try to emphasize that, or we may we may hear this phrase: "Let's keep Christ in Christmas," or "Let's put Christ back into Christmas." As uh, as all around us, you know, the the secularists and the really the anti Christians want to try to remove uh, remove them from all uh, facets of life and all areas of life and. And, uh, you know, as, as Christians, it's a very special time for us because it really is the beginning of, uh, of the story of Jesus as far as from the earthly perspective, from the human perspective. But, you know, for others, uh, when we think about Christmas, it's really a time for some of loneliness, of sorrow. Uh, people that deal with heartbreak or, or missing those who are no longer here. Others, uh, Christmas is painful because of the, uh, there may be the lack of resources, uh, 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 to give to people that they love or, or uh, you know, things that they want to do at that time. Uh, for many, it's a time of overindulgence in, in rich foods and overspending on gifts and, uh, and so forth. Um, um, <laughs> I remember thinking about uh, uh, that movie uh, Christmas with the Cranks. And uh, he goes through this whole list of how much Christmas costs them over the year, and uh, between between giving to charities and and buying presents and all the different things that were going on, and and uh, and how much is spent. It can get out of hand pretty quickly. There's a lot of things that we can give ourselves to, and you know, it's a it really is a time of celebration for believers. Uh, it doesn't matter that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, we can try to pinpoint even the timing of it. It really doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that Christ came, that God took on flesh and came for sinners and, uh, and for sinful men to, to rescue sinners uh, from a sinner's hell. And uh, we're very thankful for that. We celebrate that and we rejoice in that. You know, around, around uh, here we celebrate with, uh, we sing Christmas hymns, we, we preach Christmas messages, and we, we, uh, we teach uh, lessons in a Sunday school, and, and although apologetics is a little bit different for uh, Christmas season, but uh, I heard it was good, brother. Um, but, you know, um, uh, but you know, there's all the things that go on, the cantatas, and uh, you know, these are all almost expected, and these are all aspects that we celebrate uh, the, this time of Christmas. One of the things I enjoy is the nativity scene. A couple of years back, I did a, uh, I did a series on, um, on the various characters surrounding uh, Christmas and surrounding the Nativity. And, uh, you know, the characters themselves, they really tell us a lot. Uh, uh, Last week, we looked at Mary and Joseph, right? We looked at both of their lineages, going back to David and the fulfillment of prophecy and how I I, I built a case that it's very likely that had the kings continued and had they not been in bondage and under, uh, at this point, Roman occupation, Joseph likely would have been king of Israel. Following the, the lineage going on down. On the other side of the family tree, we have Mary, uh, the, the earthly mother, the, the virgin through whose womb Christ came, and her lineage also takes us back to, to David. And how Christ, uh, Christ uh, fulfilling the prophecy of Messiah would one day rule and reign from the throne of his father David. And we see how God does everything perfect in his time. And, and uh, we look at the shepherds. I love the story of the shepherds because, because when you look at the shepherds, they got an angelic message showing up to the shepherds. What's interesting about the shepherds is these shepherds in particular, uh, I believe they were the ones that, that uh, oversaw the particular lambs. These were the spotless lambs that were being raised for the sole purpose to be sacrificed at the time of Passover and, uh, and for, the, uh, for the temple worship. And here are these shepherds. They lived with the sheep. They were among the sheep. And it was a very holy profession in the sense of the, shepherds, uh, the sheep that they watched over. However, the shepherds themselves were dirty. It was a despised job. It was, uh, it was a minimum wage job, so to speak. This was, uh, this was not something you aspired to. You, none of the kids would say, when I grow up, I want to be a shepherd. It was filthy. It was dirty. And you know what? The shepherds were not even allowed into the temple. They weren't allowed into the synagogue. They were dirty. They were unclean for having spent time with these sheep. And yet, those were the ones... They get this angelic message in the field. A night like any other night, they're sitting there. Uh, who knows what the shepherds did to, to pass the time? And all of a sudden, the, lights, uh, the skies light up. And they get this angelic message that, uh, that they, would, uh, they would be the ones that would see Messiah, the, see this baby coming into this world. And here's the sign that's going to be to these shepherds, a sign that they would readily recognize you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Well, they knew all about that because they had to give such care to these uh, sacrificial lambs that they would swaddle them in swaddling cloth and, uh, and to, 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 to help them, protect them, keep them from getting sores and wounds. And uh, they knew what that meant. And so when they go and they'd find, they'd see this sign of this, uh, of this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, very unusual scene. But it's amazing that they get this heavenly invitation of all the people. It didn't go to the Pharisees. It didn't go to the priests. It did not go to the religious leaders. It didn't go to the Sanhedrin. It went to shepherds. And we see all that is as Christ was the, the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. And there's so much uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful picture that is painted there. I think about even, uh, even uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary's cousin Elizabeth. And God does a tremendous miracle with her. She, who was called barren in her own age, is going to give birth to a son. But we wonder, what's the significance of this? Why did they make such a big deal that, that she was barren and had no child? Well, well, we know that Zechariah was of the order of Abijah, which is uh, one of the sons of Aaron, the first high priest. And as he was doing his priestly duty and he was going around, uh, you know, he would do his two times of year plus extra holiday, uh, special days, high days. Uh, they'd go to the temple in Jerusalem, and he would do his duty. Here's, here's Zechariah, a descendant of the high priest. By the way, when time we come to the, the, the New Testament here, the high priest that was the high priest uh, was Roman appointed. Did you know that? It was not God appointed, it was Roman appointed. Now, they went along with it because they're under the Roman occupation. Now, he, had to, he met the requirements, you know, he was a son of Aaron and, and all that other stuff, but, but I, I tend to wonder, ask this question, could it be that Zacharias was the legitimate high priest for that era, for that time, which would further emphasize why it's such a big deal for him not to have a son? Because how is the high priesthood passed on? To the son. So, so here's Zacharias doing his duties, and he's there, and he's a... Um, I can just see him there. He's lighting a candle or doing what he's doing there in the temple, and an angel appears to him. Now, if you know anything about the high priest, if you know anything about the, the Day of Atonement and these different things going on in the temple, what happens if the high priest is on the Day of Atonement going into the holy place and has, uh, has sin in his life that he has not offered sacrifice for? He drops dead. Right? He's in the holy place. So imagine doing your duty in the temple. Here he is, uh, knowing all these things. He's lighting a candle, and an angel shows up what would you think? (laughs) Yeah, it's my time, right? And he says, no wonder he says, fear not. And he tells him, your wife's going to have a son. And then he strikes him with dumbness. He can't speak until John comes. So all this is going on. They name him John. This is really unusual. Jesus... When uh, when the Caesar finds out about Jesus being born King of the Jews, and the wise men do not return, do you remember how he responded? Well, we're just going to kill every child under two years old, every every man child, every boy under two years old. Where is John the Baptist spending his days? Where do we find him when he first comes to the scene? He's in the backside of the desert. He's in the wilderness. Not going to find him out there. We know that Jesus with his parents go down to Egypt. Where's John the Baptist? Could he have been raised in the wilderness? Maybe. But I know this about him. He's out there doing something very unusual. He's out there baptizing people in the wilderness, preparing the way for Messiah. And his message is this get ready for the kingdom. Get ready for the kingdom. Well, if you know anything about the prophecies about this coming kingdom and this future king who's going to sit on the throne of his father, David, you'd know that God was choosing his people, Israel, that those that would receive their Messiah would be priests in this kingdom. Well, you go back to the Old Testament, what would happen? When you were ordained to the priesthood, you'd go through this ceremonial cleansing where they would douse you with water, and it was a ceremonial cleansing uh, um, of of preparing you for this high office of the priesthood. He's out there ordaining priests for their coming kingdom as they repent and get ready for the kingdom of God. It very well might be that John the Baptist was truly the last of the legitimate priests. Now think about this. Follow me here just for a second. I'm I'm kind of unpacking these characters that are around the nativity. Jesus comes to him, John, to be baptized. Do you remember how John responded to Jesus? I have need that you baptize me. Because Jesus didn't have sins to to repent of. What was it that he was going to be baptized for? Now, up to this point, Jesus did not have a ministry, so to speak. This was going to be the kickoff of his ministry. So here's what Jesus says to him: "Let it be for righteousness' sake." And and the the wording there, the grammar is literally rendered, "Let it be for the fulfillment of righteousness." In other words, he comes to John and he says, "You know," and this is this is me kind of uh, I'm going to fill in the gaps and let you know what's 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 kind of my opinion here versus what the scriptures say explicitly. But again, keeping in mind that, that, that both of John's parents were of the lineage of Aaron. Zechariah was there doing his duties. Aaron, Abijah, him, uh, Zechariah. If, in fact, he is the legitimate high priest, his son now would, 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 would exercise that office. It just might be that John the Baptist was the last of the legitimate high priests. Jesus comes to him. John, you are the last high priest. I need you now to ordain me as a priest as I will be the final high priest. Not of the order of Aaron, but of a previous order, as Hebrews tells us, the order of Melchizedek. And as Jesus comes to the scene, he submits himself to John's baptism, uh, a, a ceremonial cleansing, if you would, to prepare for the office of the priest. And what does he do? He immediately starts going out and begins his ministry. He finds his disciples. He says, follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And he, and he takes them on this journey. And what are they doing? They're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and they're going out, and they are also baptizing people and, and sharing this thing. We come to the very end of Jesus' ministry. He lays down his life, the final propitiation, the final sacrifice for sins he raises up his life again he gives his disciples some marching orders and what does he tell them to do go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them ordaining them in the name of the father son and holy ghost teaching them to observe all things which are i command you and alone with you always and even to the end of the world what are we doing every time we submit to believers baptism we are ordaining believer priests who will offer up spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Amen. See, see, every picture, every character is showing us something about Christ and his mission and what his purpose is, and we go through all these things. So I think about them. I think about the angels. I think about uh, all the different aspects uh, revolving around this. And, and, uh, uh, and, and I think about... Think about the worship of this time of year. The worship. You know, the angels, they worshiped. We just read that. The the shepherds fell down and they worshiped the baby. The wise men came and they had gifts and they they wanted to go and worship the child. In fact, even the animals in their own way worship as even uh, a creation itself shows the glory and power in his Godhead. We see all these people in the Nativity, but you know there's some people in the Nativity that we tend to leave out, some groups. And if we're not careful, even in our own Christian life, we tend to leave them out of the message of Christmas, the message of Christ. I think about one of the first groups that we leave out are the ignorant. The first first missing person to consider is Caesar Augustus. In Luke uh, 2... We read that in the first, uh, first few verses there. It tells us that he ordered a taxing, if you would, uh, this census that would ha- take place. And, um, and uh, he, wanted, um, uh, he wanted to know how many people were in his kingdom. Now, he probably did this as preparation for levying taxes on the people to raise the revenue or, or whatnot, we understand that nothing, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, you know, the, uh, the government's going to do what government does, and they're going to try to raise the taxes. They're going to try to, to, to leverage it just right for them. But, uh, but Caesar Augustus, here's the way the Caesars saw themselves. They saw themselves as God on earth. And, uh, and Roman citizens were required to offer a pinch of incense upon a burning altar and worship him once per year. And what Augustus did not know is that the one the one true living God was, um, was using this poor, ignorant Roman to accomplish his sovereign will. Uh, what Augustus did not know is that God was using him, the ruler of the most powerful empire in the world, to accomplish his will in ancient prophecy. See, we have no way of knowing what the reason why Augustus chose this time, this day, this, uh, this season, if you would. But we know this in Galatians 4, 4-5, through 5, it tells us this, but when the fullness of time was come, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So, so we have these players, they're ignorant what's going on. I think about how David, I'm sorry, how um, Joseph, where was, where was Joseph living, by the way, when all this took place? Nazareth. The tiny town of Nazareth. As they said about Jesus, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's how they viewed the, the uh, people of Nazareth. But the prophecy said he'd be in Bethlehem. How do we get Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that this prophecy can be fulfilled? Here's Caesar Augustus. Again, I don't know what prompted it, but maybe he's thinking, you know, it's been a while since we've had a census, and we've got to figure out how we're going to get some res- revenue. Why don't we uh, have everyone go back to their... Uh, their uh, their their family city or their their origin, so we can get this census thing going and and uh, here we go. Let's get people moving. You think you think he just had this idea one day? God knew exactly what he was doing. When the fullness of time was come, when God sent His Son into the world, the ancient world. Uh, uh, really benefited several conditions here at this time period when this fullness of time has come. Of course, uh, we ha- we, this is the time. This is going to be the fulfillment of several prophecies of the first advent of Christ when he would come to this earth. All the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verse number 15, we have the first glimpse of the gospel when God tells Eve that, that a seed from the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And, uh, and, and there was going to be a Messiah. There was going to be this seed that would accomplish God's will, which would, which would uh, bring all this stuff back together. And so here it comes to the time, this fullness of time. I think about Roman law. Roman law at the time would protect uh, Paul and others as they traveled the Roman world and preached the gospel. I think about Roman peace at the time. The lack of wars in the Roman Empire allowed the apostles and the early believers to travel freely without fear. Think about the Roman roads. You know, the expression was, all roads lead to Rome. The, the Roman uh, road system allowed them um, to travel, uh, travel far all around the known world there at the time into the spread of the gospel and spread of those churches in those early days. I think about the Greek language. It was the most common language at the time. It was, if you would, even a trade language. And, um, and it was such a, uh, such a detailed language. I, I, I love when I go back and I'm studying some of the Greek um, you know, I don't do that just to, you know, try to correct the Bible. I don't do that to try to say, you know, I know more than you. But there's some, there's some preciseness at times when you go back there and you think, man, we don't even use English like this, <laughs> the way that it's done. And, uh, and it was just such a, such a great time where God was going to preserve His Word for, uh, for the rest of the ages. Fullness of time was come. When Augustus issued his decree, he didn't know that he was being used of God to fulfill another ancient prophecy. In Micah 5.2, the Bible says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, we ruler in Israel, whose going forth had been from old, from everlasting. The everlasting one was going to be born. Try to wrap your mind around that one. Because the families of Joseph and Mary were from Bethlehem, the command to be counted forced them to travel from Nazareth. Luke 2, 4, uh, we see that in Luke 2, uh, 2, verse number 4, we just read. Uh, and so all the way to Bethlehem and, and uh, where Jesus would then be born, we see that in verse number 6. And so it was that while they were there, there in Bethlehem, that the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. See, Augustus was ignorant of his involvement in the sovereign plan of God. He's going out with his own plan. He's I I'm I'm God here on this earth and and I you know I'm Caesar and and I'm the one that is uh, that is sovereign in this land. Yet as much as part of the, he's as much as part of the Christian story as the angels, as the shepherds. Without him, there would not be a going to Bethlehem. You know it's amazing how God is even working in our lives around the ignorant, those that uh, that are completely just oblivious to God God doing anything. But Jesus came in the world to save people just like Him. He came uh, to save those who are ignorant of God and and living for themselves. uh, um, um, He came to save the dead, the deceived, the, the depraved, the doomed. I think about Ephesians 2. In fact, let me just turn there real quick. Ephesians 2 and verse number 1. Ephesians 2 and verse number 1, And you at the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, Where in time past you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children's disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others and verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. Wow. You know what's so important about this? That yes, Christ came for the ignorant. If we're not careful, here's how we tend to tiptoe around the gospel. Well, you know, if people come to me and ask, I'll share it with them. Well, you know, if they come, you know, searching, and uh, I remember when I was, um, uh, when I was uh, stationed in Iraq back in, um, in uh, when was I over there, 05? Um, was that? 94. Yeah, 94, <laughs> thank you. Um, I remember I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my future in the military and, and really debating about some things, and one of the things I was considering was possibly going the direction of the chaplaincy. <laughs> And, um, and I was really thinking about this. And I remember while I was over there, I was uh, reading, uh, I don't know, I think it was an Air Force newspaper or news, whatever, Air Force News, and, uh, and I read an article about these two Air Force chaplains that got in trouble for evangelizing outside of the chapel service. And I thought, if I can't minister to the servicemen and women, what would even be the point of that job? So instead, I just was a soul winner as an as a E5 over there in the Army and just telling people about Jesus. I got threatened with a court-martial by a Catholic chaplain for preaching the gospel without a license. Sounds like John Bunyan. I was in good company. Yeah. I kept preaching the gospel, by the way. Uh, that didn't stop me. But I was thinking about this. Wait a minute. You, only, you can only share the gospel of those that come to you and ask about the gospel? What about all those that are completely ignorant of God's love, completely ignorant of God's grace, completely ignorant of the gospel? Did Jesus or did He not die for whosoever will may come? Did he not die for the sins of the whole world? And does he not desire that all men come to repentance? For God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. But as suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If that is the desire of God, and he's given the duty to us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, then listen, we need to go to the ignorant. Those that have no knowledge of God. No no, no thought of even right or wrong. No thought of a hereafter. And we go to them and we share with them. Folks, don't fall into the trap that, you know what, I'm just going to keep to myself unless they ask. Don't fall into these traps. That's what the world will have you to do. Don't, don't, don't go push your religion on others. By the way, I'm not pushing anything. The Bible is full of invitations. We present them with the gospel. And we leave it in their their court. You now have a duty. Are you going to respond or are you going to reject? What are you going to do with what you've been given? But can I tell you, did you know you are ignorant about everything until you learn about it? There's your profound nugget for the day. You are ignorant until you learn. Folks, I was ignorant of the gospel until I was presented with the gospel. And to think that if I did not have somebody shove that down my throat, I would have lived in my ignorance and I would have died in my ignorance. I would have been like the rich, the rich man who lived his world all for himself. And in Luke 16, the Bible says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Folks, God did not make hell for man. Did you know that? He made it for the devil and his angels. And yet, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against a holy God, that's where the ignorant will find himself. Here's Caesar Augustus. He had no idea he was falling right into God's plan. But you know what? Christ came and died for him as well. We don't think of it that way. Who witnessed to Caesar. Who shared the gospel with Caesar? I love the story of Paul. There's little, little nuggets, little clues to kind of find out how far-reaching his influence was. But when he was writing to the Philippians, he was under house arrest there. And as he's writing to, uh, writing to the Philippian believers. And he talks about how far the gospel had gone because of the bonds that he was in. And he said, today there are even people... They're even believers in the palace. What what an attitude to have, by the way. He's like, this is great. This is great being locked up. This is great not having freedom. Because there are people saved today in the palace as a result who maybe could have been witnessing to these Caesars. I'm not going to get into all that, how I got there. We're running out of time. But I'm just saying we need to be careful as believers in this Christmas season not to leave out the ignorance. Because you were ignorant once. I was ignorant once. You know who else we leave out of the nativity? The indifferent. I don't care. You know, maybe there was something, but, you know, I'm just too busy. Uh, look at verse number 7. We're introduced to uh, uh, the, another person, a part of this Christmas story. In verse number 7, it says, And so it was that while they were there... The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And uh, verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. Who told them there was no room for them in the inn? The innkeeper, innkeeper, right? You've seen the play. (laughs) I love that video uh, uh, of those little kids retelling the story and the person doing the innkeeper. We have no room, literally no room. And uh, (laughs) there was no room for them in the inn. The innkeeper was one who would watch over this inn. He'd collect the money from those who would stay in the establishment. And uh, uh, in ancient days there in the Middle East, it wasn't like modern-day hotels. We think of an inn, we think of like a nice hotel and uh, you know, maybe, a, maybe a continental breakfast in the morning. It wasn't like that. There usually was an open courtyard surrounded by an enclosure with awnings or some kind of shelters where the people could, uh, could set up a bed for the night. It was just a space, really. And, uh, or we might call it this way, you know, an Airbnb, <laughs> and uh, just a spot in the corner of someone's yard somewhere. Um, <laughs> that's an Airbnb around here sometimes. Uh, I was looking up Airbnbs one time, and uh, there was somebody that was selling uh, uh, a portion of their property, uh, grass, to pitch a tent, $50 a night to pitch your tent on their front yard. And, uh, and then they had like a bathroom you could use inside. That was, that's what you're paying for. And I was like, boy, whatever you can do to make a couple bucks, I guess. But... Uh, but these provided travelers with a bit of safety and rest for their travels. The innkeeper would be paid for, um, by the travelers for the place that they'd stay, and it was his duty to provide uh, this lodging with, uh, with food and a drink and a shelter and just kind of watch over them for that night. The inn in Bethlehem was an ancient inn. Uh, it had been um, a, a business in business for a long time. It was known as um, uh, Chim, uh, Shimham's Inn, named after the friend of King David in 2 Samuel 19. Uh, Jeremiah stayed at that inn when he was uh, kidnapped and taken to Egypt in Jeremiah 41. When Joseph had arrived to this inn there in Bethlehem, he, uh, Mary was very pregnant. The innkeeper uh, turned them away because it was already full. The words, uh, his words to them uh, as he turned them away was that there was no room. But here's the question to ask. Is that actually correct? Was there actually no room for this pregnant Mary? Well, I have to ask, Mr. Innkeeper, where were you staying? Did you have a room? See, sometimes it's not a matter of vacancy, but a matter of priority. And so it is in our own Christian life. We have to ask ourselves this. Is there room for Jesus? Here he sees this great need. By the way, what would you do if you're, you're this innkeeper and you're, you're taking care of this thing? You have a business to run after all. And this woman shows up, and you can tell she's ready to pop. Okay, and, uh, and you look at her, look her in her eyes and say, there's no room. There's no room. How cold do you have to be? How indifferent do you have to get to, 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 to not offer up at least a roof over your head and maybe some blankets and say, Look, why don't you just stay here till this settles down and maybe we can find a place. Maybe some people will move on by tomorrow. We can get you into some more comfortable accommodations. Um, but he was completely unmoved by Mary and her obvious need. He was completely indifferent to, to the fact that there was a divine plan, that God was doing something here. The innkeeper was indifferent that night. But he is as much part of the Christmas story as anyone else that was there. You know, we don't often mention him. We kind of say in passing. Well, there's no room in the inn, and we move on to the next part. But he's included too. And you know, there's a, this world is full of people that are just like this innkeeper. Just indifferent. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't a God. I don't know. Can anybody really know? Well, folks, we're going to face that God one day. My... Uh, my son's been witnessing to a friend of his, and he's believed in you know, a lot of the, the lies that are going around there. Well, Christianity is oppressive, and you know all these things that uh, that liberals like to point out. But they'll, they'll never give you a verse or how they can. You know, wh- wh- where's this oppressiveness coming from? Uh, by the way, if you are a fan, if you are a student of history, you'll find that Christianity liberates every culture that it touches. But you become very indifferent. And you look at other things as your excuse why you don't trust the true and living God. By the way, do people mess up? Have people made mistakes? Have Christians made mistakes? But that is a terrible way to judge a perfect and holy God. You don't judge him through that lens. Potential spam's calling. Call them back. You know, we think of these that, uh, you know, they've got nothing to do with, with God. They don't care about the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't care about the gospel of grace. They just live in their lives. And by the way, I will say this. Be careful. Don't close off those doors. They may be indifferent now because they're living lives. They may be indifferent now because there's so much going on. But the time is going to come, the time very well may come, where God so gets a hold of their life that there is nothing else that is, that is arresting their time that this is the most important thing, be there, be ready. Hey, I remember when I had a friend who was telling me about Jesus Christ, telling me about a God who loves me, telling me about a God who, who laid down his son's life uh, so that I might be saved. And, uh, you know, I may not understand it all, but you know what? Maybe he'll have some answers. Maybe she'll have something to say. See, when Jesus came, the Bible tells us he came into his own. in John 1, 11, and what happened? And his own received him not. He came into his own and his own was indifferent. He came into his own and his own received him not. Talking about the Jewish people. But he came anyway. He came anyway. He came, he died. He, he died to save the indifferent from their sins and from themselves. They are a part of the whosoever that Jesus came and died for. Jesus died for the indifferent. <clears throat> In the last days, John 7, 37, In the last days of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. If the indifferent will hear him and come to him, they too will be saved. Christ came for the indifferent. Christ came for the ignorant. Christ came for the skeptical. We leave out the skeptical of this nativity story. Look at verse number 15. We're in Luke 2. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass that as the angels were gone away, from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even to Bethlehem and to see this thing which was which come to pass, which the Lord made known unto us. Verse 16, and they came in uh, with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known the abroad the saying, which was told them concerning the child, and all they that heard it. Now get this, let me let me back up again, verse 17. When they had seen it, They made known abroad the same which was told them concerning the child. Now, remember what I said to you about shepherds. Shepherds smell. They're dirty. Shepherds don't go around the market and start conversations with people. And yet they showed up and they went into these places and they started just making known abroad. Anyone that would hear this this story, this amazing story about this baby that came through a virgin's womb lying in a manger... And they're going around telling the story abroad. Verse 18, And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. They wondered about it. They thought about it. The word, means, uh, the word wondered there means to be impressed or to marvel. It carries the idea of being astonished by something. The news that the shepherds told them uh, or left them with uh, as they brought that to them if you would left them with their mouths kind of hanging open, like what, huh? They were sort of astonished at this thing. They were amazed. They were amazed that this group of, of of dirty, vile shepherds moving through the streets of Bethlehem were praising God and preaching about the coming Messiah. And the people who heard the story, they they, they were amazed. They were they were shocked at this thing. The Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, of all places. He's come as a baby. He, he's just over there in the manger. They were skeptical, but it didn't move them to the point of decision. It didn't move them to the point of investigation. It impressed them, but they never went to see if it was true. They didn't remain skeptical. Again, this describes so many people in our own world. We preach the gospel. We tell them, uh, that, uh, we tell them that, that, that there's a God who loves them, a God that wants to save them, that though they have so offended Him, He came and He died for their sins, and He wants them to, to have a relationship with them. He wants to give them a right standing before Him. And they're kind of like, huh, that's amazing. I remember I was talking to one guy, and he said, you know what, I'm just not a fan of getting anything for free. I've, or I've worked for everything that I have. Careful, because the Bible tells us it's not of works of righteousness that we have done, according to his mercy. Not of works. For by grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, this is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I was talking to a person just recently, and I had said, you know, there's really two religions in the entire world. And this is, by the way, I think how you can tell that, this, that, 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 that the, the biblical way of heaven, the biblical way to God, could not be man's idea. Because you know what man comes up with? They come up with something you see all around the world today. And what is that? It doesn't matter what religion it is. What must you do to be right with God? Or to have this right end? Some, some don't believe in God, but they may believe in like this eternal nirvana or some kind of end. Whatever it is, right? What must you do to accomplish this? God says... The answer to that question is nothing. You can't do enough. You could never in your own flesh and in your own strength be good enough, be right enough to earn your way to God. That's the whole miracle of Christmas is that God took on human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The deity of Christ is so, uh, so important in this, in this conversation because here it is, God taking on flesh to redeem mankind to himself he became a man to redeem man lived a perfect sinless life laid himself down as the ultimate and final sacrifice and that blows our mind that leaves us astonished but the question is were you not were you impressed with this story the question is will you receive this story will you believe it as truth for by grace you are saved through what Faith. Through faith. You know, we all have faith in something. Did you know scientists, so-called, have faith? There's a lot of gaps that you've got to fill in with faith. They have faith. I only believe in science. False. Nobody believes. By the way, you know, what does science mean? Anybody? It means knowledge. The very simple, basic definition means knowledge. Nobody has all knowledge. So you can't say, I only base things on all knowledge, on science. There's gaps. That's why we, by the way, that's why we still, as long as we have recorded history, as, long, as far as science has come, we still have scientists discovering things because we're still figuring out God. I mean, that's really the end of it. I mean, I love some of the older scientists who still believed in God. Like Isaac Newton. Well, what is science? What's the end of science? It's discovering God. It's God's evidence of himself that he put out. Folks, if there was no God, there'd be no constants. There'd be no scientific laws like gravity, like gender. Oh, let's not go down that one. Uh (laughs) Jesus came for people like this, the skeptical. Wait, I've got some questions. It doesn't quite make sense. I am astonished. I'm amazed at this story, but, but, but it hasn't moved me. And uh, here's what I say. This is why uh, Ryan's Sunday school class that he's starting, I encourage you to come out for it. Apologetics, giving reason for your faith. That's going to help the skeptics. That's going to help the skepticals, giving some answer. By the way, skepticism is healthy. You know what true biblical Christianity, if you're in a Bible-believing church, the preacher is going to say, go study this out for yourself. A cult will say, hey, check your brain at the door. Listen to what I have to say. You should be able to study. You should be able to get some answers. You should be able to ask questions. I love skeptics. I am a skeptic in so many areas. And I'm going to prove it. And I want to make sure that I'm not just buying into some kind of narrative. I want to question all the assumptions. I want to turn over every stone. I want to make sure that I'm understanding truth. I think about the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Verse number 17 to 22, the Bible tells us this story. He ran to Jesus looking for spiritual answers. It says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled, uh, and, and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said to him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said to him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, so all that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up thy, uh, the cross, thy cross, and follow me. And he was sad at the saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Jesus here is laying out the cost of following him, and, and he comes to this rich young ruler, and that was, that was this need that he had, and, and, and he comes to him, and he says, what must I do? And he says, hey, hey, do take this next step, and you're going to treasure in heaven. Ooh, that's a hard one. Walked away very discouraged. You know, every time you hear a sermon, and every time you, 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 you're presented with biblical truth, God's passing close to you. God's giving an opportunity to respond, an opportunity to, to 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 say, "God, I heard, I listened, and here's my response. Here's how I'm turning to you." And every time, every time uh, uh, someone invites you with the gospel message to be saved, or every time you share the gospel with somebody, God's given that opportunity, and He's inviting and He's wooing uh, wooing them. And I think about uh, the songwriter. Uh, um, uh, Fanny Crosby, uh, was mentioned earlier today, and, and uh, she was, uh, uh, I believe the story was right. She was visiting some women in prison, and uh, and was sharing uh, uh, sharing testimony and the gospel, and and uh, there was a lady there uh, that she was kind of responding to what was being said, and she was in one of the uh, and she 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 says there she says, Oh, pass me not, O Lord, pass me not, and she wrote that song, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And when God is moving and when God is uh, uh, drawing people, uh, I don't want to be the one that is missed. I don't want to be so caught up in my skepticism and I don't want to be so caught up in my questioning that I don't take the step of faith and say, God, I will believe. Like the one man that came to Jesus and Jesus said, hey, if you just have faith, he says, oh, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. God, could you make up the difference? Could you make up the gap where I might be missing it just a little bit? We're, we're challenged by Isaiah 55, verse number 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So the challenge is to the skeptic, don't simply keep marveling at the message. Respond. Respond. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever been saved. I don't know if I've ever been saved the Bible way. The challenge is this. Respond. Respond. He gives an invitation. He says, Whosoever will may come. And, uh, and there's a response. Come, come is what he's saying. He's, he's pleading with you. He's calling you. We're not promised another day. See, Christ, uh, when, we, when we consider this nativity, we tend to leave out the ignorant. We tend to leave out the indifferent. We leave out the skeptics. You know who else we leave out? We leave out the self righteous. The self righteous. Say, Well, who in the nativity is the self righteous? I'm referring to the religious leaders. You remember the story. I uh, think about uh, uh, so, so many, right? Take, for instance, the, the rabbi in Bethlehem uh, who circumcised the Lord Jesus when he was eight days old. I love his story because he was waiting for the Messiah. And he said, I've seen the Lord's salvation. He recognized it, didn't he? and he, he responded well. But I think about so many of the religious leaders, religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, summoned by Pharaoh, in, or by, Pharaoh, by, by Herod in, uh, in Matthew 2. Remember when the wise men showed up, and they said, where is he that would be born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east, and come to worship him. And he said, king? I'm the king around here. And, and they start telling him about this star that we've seen, and so what does he do? He calls these scribes, and he calls uh, you know, the religious leaders, and, and what's amazing is they had the answer. Oh, yeah, he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. You knew this? Yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they send them over that way. But think about these guys. So many of them, they knew the prophecies. You know what they would do in synagogue in those days? They wouldn't preach sermons like we do today. They would go and they'd pick a scroll from one of the prophets. They would open the scroll, they'd, they'd put on special gloves, they'd open that scroll, they had a little pointer, this little little pointing stick, and they'd read that scroll. And they would simply just go week after week and month after month and year after year would just read the prophets and then read the prophets. and just read. Folks, they knew the prophecies. They knew what the scriptures said. But they're so caught up in their self-righteousness. Remember the Pharisees, they were seen as God's policemen walking around with their robes and their trinkets and their gold. If you were just a regular Jew, you'd see a, you'd see a Pharisee coming along. You'd Stand up straight. Make sure, you know, it's not the Sabbath, is it? Okay, let's make sure I'm not carrying anything. And I mean, they, I mean, they, were, they were trying to, you know, make, make sure everything was right. And they, they walked around like they were God's policemen. I remember I was witnessing to a guy, and he grew up in this Pentecostal church. And, um, and he, uh, he said, at that church, they would have these altar calls. And he'd go forward, and he'd kneel, and he'd pray. And he said, this girl would come by, and she tried to correct the way I was holding my hands in prayer. And she said, no, you got to pray like this, and you got to, you know. It's like, what are you doing? And he, he, like, he could not get past this, and and uh, he's like, he's like, is that church? Is that is that Christianity? I was like, no, that's weird. And, uh, <laughs> um, um, but uh, but you know, it, that's what these guys were. They were God's policemen. Unless you adjust this way, unless you, so you have that Pharisee. Jesus tells the story, and he's uh, he lifted his eyes and prayed within himself. God, I think, I, th- uh, you know, I thank God. I'm not like these others, like this Pharisee, this sinner. I fast uh, uh, twice in a week, and I give tithes of all that I have, and Jesus. Jesus said, you know what? He, he didn't walk away justified that day. The sinner who wouldn't even lift up his eyes. The publican. He walked away justified. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were amazing. They knew exactly where Christ should be born. They quoted Micah 5.2, was going to be in Bethlehem. And yet they did not follow the wise men. They didn't go down to see if this thing had happened. And, you know... This is probably an issue we run into probably one of the most in our own day and age, the self-righteous. You know, when we have discussions about repentance, repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the biggest things we've got to get past is our own self-righteousness, our own goodness. Banking on the fact that maybe, just maybe, I've been good enough. Maybe I've been religious enough. Maybe I've done enough. And, uh, and get to this place where we realize, uh, uh, like, the, like the one songwriter said, uh, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. I, I, I don't bring anything, no goodness of myself. I've got nothing to offer. I am, I am uh, I'm on my face before a thrice holy God with nothing in my hands. The only way uh, I could be accepted is by, by the blood of Jesus Christ itself. It's amazing the ideas we come up with. You tell people, hey, are you, are, you, are you certain that you're going to be in heaven when you die? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh, tell me. That's awesome. That's wonderful news. Tell me why. Well, I was baptized as a baby. I, I've been in church my whole life. My grandfather built this church. I mean, you'll hear all kinds of stuff. My favorite is this. Well, I was in a really bad car accident, and I called out to God, Lord, would you save me? And the paramedics showed up and pulled me out of that burning car and, and, uh, and I know that day God saved me. Like, huh? What? Folks, all of our righteousness, Isaiah tells us, are as filthy rags. All of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, all the best that we can bring to God are like pus-infected leper's cloths. They're saying, God, aren't you impressed with this? God says, that is disgusting. The book of Isaiah describes it as putrefying. That's disgusting. And we think we're going to impress God with our little things. God says, "No, no, no, it's not of works of righteousness. The only thing that God accepts is the act of righteousness of his only son when he offered himself as a spotless lamb on our behalf. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the innocent dying for the guilty, that the guilty might go free. How important that is. See, we fall into a world that 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. All around us, we have people that, religious people or, or just self-sufficient people. So I'm the self-made man. I don't depend on anybody. Yeah, you're going to try to bank your eternity on that? When you stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you stand before the thrice holy God. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged of the things which were written in the books, of what sort they were. And, uh, and death and hell gave up the dead, and whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life were cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. You think you were going to stand before that God? This God, where the both small and great stood before from heaven and earth fled away because there was found no place for them, that that God, you're going to stand before him and say, I got this? No, we fall on our face before him. And by the way, yes, the Bible tells us, yeah, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But let me just say, you better be sure that you're bowing and confessing now. Because when you bow and confess, then it's too late. It's too late. The self-righteous needs to humble himself and say, I can't save myself. I'm out of time, got more to, to share, but when you think about the nativity, we leave out the ignorant, the indifference, the skeptics, the self-righteous. We even leave out the wicked. King Herod, which is known as Herod the Great, was a wicked man. He was half Jewish, half Edomite. As a half-Jew, half-Gentile, the Jews had little use for him. He served as a king, but was under the control of the Roman emperor. And it, uh, 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 in an attempt to, to, to win favor of the Jews and maintain peace in his kingdom, he, uh, he'd spend 46 years and an enormous sum of money turning the Jewish temple into a place of beauty and splendor. King Herod was also a very cruel man. He had, he had wives and sons put to death because he felt like they were, uh, uh, they were after his power. When, he be, when it became clear that he would die, he ordered that seventy Jewish religious re, excuse me, religious leaders be executed when he died, so that on the day that of his death there'd be weeping. That was very cruel. It was this cruel, self-centered king that murdered. Uh, 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 and murderer that the wise men approached to find the, the person they called king of the Jews. Herod made a show, uh, 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 you know, he, he, when he inquired of them, he said, you know, I want to go and worship as well. And of course, when they did not return, we know the story. You know, our world is full of self-centered and cruel people, wicked people. They need to know that Jesus came and died for them. You know, I think there's some people we just say, oh, they don't deserve the gospel. We don't want to share the gospel with him. Jesus died for people like King Herod and the soldiers that carried out his orders. You know, Jesus died for the abortionists. He died for the serial killers. He died for murderers. He died for drunks and drug addicts and homosexuals and lesbians and thieves and He died for ruthless people. He died for uh, 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 people that are living for for power and and uh, he died for people that would that would uh, uh, you know sell their own souls and sell their own children uh, just to get ahead. Uh, these are all the people he died for the hateful people the the robbers and Folks, we rub shoulders with every day, sinful people, living for salve, and, and uh, he died for all these people. He came for these people, folks. That's, that's, that's the message of Christmas. You say, wow, you're talking kind of heavy things about Christmas. It's supposed to be about a baby and a manger, and this is fun and it's light, and, and no, no, no. This is why he came. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, to, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Romans 5, 6 through 9, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended His love to us now we are yet sinners christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him folks christ came to this world to save sinners that's the message of christmas you know it's amazing this time of year if you're like us, you know, you've got your series of movies that you'll take your family through and you enjoy these Christmas movies and you'll, you'll enjoy these different traditions and cookie baking and decorating and trees and all this other kinds of stuff. But I find it so comical every year that when you go through these movies, many of them, there's always somebody trying to figure out the meaning of Christmas. What's it really all about? I remember when Lucy, Lou asked the, uh, you know, asked the Grinch, and he says, presence, right?" And uh, Nick can do it better than I can. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, and uh, you know, and, and many times they don't actually ever come to a conclusion, or it'll be like, "Well, it's about family, and it's about this, it's about that." No, no, it's about it's about the Son of God became man, so that man can become the sons of God. He came to give His life a ransom, to lay down His life on our behalf that we through his blood might be saved. That's the Christmas message. And folks, it's for everyone. It's for whosoever will may come. And that's that's an important challenge because during this time of year, often we do get very caught up in the family traditions. We do get very caught up in in self. Yes, I know many times it is a selfless time. There's a lot of things to do to serve others and various things, but, but if we're not careful, we really miss what it's all about. So I encourage you even, you know, this next week, invite people out. They're going to hear about this this baby in a manger next week, and they're going to hear what it's all about. Christ loves them. Christ loves you. And Christ wants to see this world saved. You know, we talk a lot about all the things wrong in this world, and we have the answer. But you know what? We just as easily can leave out the ones that are typically left out of the nativity if we're not careful well I just don't want to get into it with that person Christ loves him. Well, I don't think it's right to just sort of impose my beliefs on somebody else why are you afraid of ridicule afraid of getting a little uncomfortable I wonder how comfortable Jesus was on that cross That's us pray I appreciate you all this morning Lord we thank you for this time together this morning